good morning once again. If you're visiting, my name is Jeff. Um, I am uh, the pastor here at the Grove Church. And we are in a series that I've been really excited about. Uh, it's a series where you're going to have a chance to hear from me, from uh, my wife, and from other of the elders and teachers here at the Grove. When we talk about who we are, whether it's a church or individuals, we are going to take a deeper look. And we've been taking a deeper look at our mission and vision of the Grove Church Our vision statement reads as this, to see irreligious people become fully transformed followers of Jesus Christ. Our mission then is to, uh, is how we make that vision happen. And we do it by reaching up, reaching out and reaching in. And you're going to be hearing more about the ways we in fact do that. The first week we talked about the most important thing as an individual or as a church, what we must do. And that's to love God. Jesus himself said, this is the greatest commandment is to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. So we talked about it. What does that look like? And we said it was gratefulness and obedience and, and discipleship. And we do those things here and, and, and we got to be better at them. The second thing Jesus said is to love others as yourself. And so we talked about in the second week, what it means to be irreligious. What does that word mean? And we simply said, it's, it's a non-believer, someone who is indifferent towards God, that our goal from day one is to reach people who don't know Jesus and to share the gospel with them. Well, how do we do that? How, what, what do we say to them? Well, we talk about our story and each one of us has a story to tell because we've become transformed storytellers. And you heard that last week where we've all had something happen in our lives from God. He's transforming us and he's given us a story. And no matter what your story is and how messy you feel, you still have to share your story. Because it's your story and only you can share it. And so today we're going we're gonna to go on and we're going to look at our vision statement. The next word that we come to is the, the word follower. You know, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it actually mean to follow him? I think if we were to look at the landscape of Christianity in our culture, we would see and find that most Christians would say it simply means I read the Bible, I go to church, and I pray. That those would be the the indicators or the signposts of me following Jesus. But even if it were that simple, I think still each one of us, we struggle with these thoughts of, is that enough? Does does God want something more from me? What does he want? Often I think we, we settle that God, he just wants to smite us when we sin, right? He wants to take away our joy and our fun. We had a series a while back talking about the broken images we all have of God. And for some of us, our journey looks like a courtroom trial where God is sitting there as judge. And he's hearing testimony after testimony from our accusers waiting to judge us. Or it's somewhat like a a factory where we're working on this assembly line. And and God is sitting up there in the the watchtower. And he's got his, 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 his little notebook or his clipboard. And he's marking down everything we do wrong so that he can punish us later. Because God wants us to look perfect. He wants us to be perfect because us becoming perfect is the goal, right? I don't think so. Let me, let me, let me read this, this passage out of Romans 12. It's in the messages. This is what it says out of the message. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. But don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in to it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God 
You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. In the New Living Translation, it reads this, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. He is perfect. His will is perfect. We're not commanded to be perfect. That's not the goal. God wants to transform us by changing the way you think and see the world around you. And in this process, and it's a process, God is passionate about it. And he says it's more than a one hour on a Sunday or 30-minute devotional in the morning or a scripture verse posted to Facebook. Transformed into a new person is the goal. No longer who you were, but new in him. And God is so passionate about this. He, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to help change us, to transform us from the inside out. If you want to know, hold that call, I'll get it later. If you want to know what God thinks about you, what God wants for you, what his will is for you, it begins by you giving him permission to change the way you think. And so what does he want from his followers? What does it mean to follow him? I'm going to read you this segment of a blog written by John Ortberg from his, uh, one of his books and talking about his relationship with his wife and how, and you'll see in a moment how this kind of uh, resembles or relates to our relationship with God. I'll read it for you. It says this. One evening, my wife, Nancy, pulled me into our bedroom and said she wanted to talk. She closed the door so that none of the kids could hear. And she took out a list. I was not happy to see a list. She claims it was an index card, not a list, but it had words written on it. So to me, that's a list. You know, she said, when our marriage is at its best, I feel we share responsibilities. We divide our work well and our kids see us do that. And I feel valued. And I think that's important for our family. But for some time, because you feel so many demands on your life, this value has been slipping. When our marriage is working well, I also feel like both of us know each other's lives. You know the details about my life, and I know the details about yours. And I feel like that's been slipping too. Lately, I know what's going on with you, but you don't ask me much about what's going on with me. She went on. When our marriage is at its best, you also bring a kind of lightness and joy to it. And then she reminded me of a story. We were on our second date in the lobby of the Disneyland Hotel waiting to get something to eat. And she had to use the restroom. And when she came out, there was scores of people in the lobby. And I was in a goofy mood. And so I said loud enough for them all to hear, Woman, I can't believe you kept me waiting for two hours. Well, her response was, well, if I wouldn't have to, if I wouldn't have to, uh, I'm sorry, if I wouldn't have to, if you, I wouldn't have to, if you wouldn't insist on having your mother live with us, I have to wait on her hand and foot every day. She yelled that right across the lobby on our second date. And my first thought was, I like this woman. Nancy told me that story and said, you know what? When our marriage is at its best, you can listen and laugh and be spontaneous. You haven't been that for a while. I love that guy. And I miss 
that guy. I knew what she was talking about. I, I miss that guy too, I told her. I'd love to feel free like that, but I feel like I'm carrying so many burdens. I have personal issues and financial challenges at work. I have writing projects and travel commitments. I feel like I'm carrying this weight all the time. I get what you're saying, but I, I need you to know I'm, I'm doing the best I can. No, you're not. She responded immediately. That was not the response I had anticipated. Everyone is supposed to nod their head sympathetically when you say I'm doing the best I can. But Nancy loves truth and me too much to do that. So she rang my bell. She said, no, you're not. You've talked about how it would be so good to see a counselor or, or an executive coach or maybe a spiritual director. You've talked about building friendships, but I haven't seen you take steps towards any of that. No, you're not. And as soon as she said that, I knew she was right. But I didn't say that to her immediately because my spiritual gift is pouting, which I exercised beautifully over the next few days. And as I did, a question emerged in my mind, what is it that you really want? I want that conversation to be the conversation you have today with God. That when you feel distant, when your relationship with him feels, feels off, God is asking you, where have you been, man? I miss you. What's going on? And you look back at God and say, man, what do you want? I, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. God might be saying to you today, no, you're not. Join me in prayer. God, over the next few moments, begin to soften our hearts. Let us see the, the places in our life where we haven't given to you, where we're not following you. God, we want that again. We want to rekindle that again, to be the person you created us to be. Give us ears to hear. In your name I pray, amen. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14, Luke 14. Whenever presented with a question or when, when challenged by religious people in the New Testament, Jesus would often tell stories or these parables. And what parables are, they're simply metaphors. Where Jesus would take stories or even current events and he would communicate realities of our own lives. These kingdom realities in our present reality. And so here's the context of Luke 14. You have this huge group of people that are following Jesus. This crowd is following him. And he, Jesus understands the issue that he's facing in that moment. Very similar to the issue the church faces today. It's very easy to say, I'm following Jesus. It's very easy to say, I believe in God. It's very easy to say that I'm a Christian. And it's very easy to go to church. But here's the issue. When large groups gather together, when churches grow in numbers... When entire cultures claim Christianity, things become blurry quick. And before you know it, we no longer know what it means to actually be following Jesus. And we forget what it means to be a Christian. In fact, we use words like Christian. Even though none of the believers in the New Testament refer to themselves as this, Jesus never used that word. The disciples never used that word. They were followers they were people of the way. And so Jesus is about to tell this story to this entire crowd and to make them aware of what it means to follow him. Because my guess is that there would be people inside of this crowd that had no idea who Jesus even was. They just heard there was free fish and bread. 
I'm going, right? Like last week, cookies. I, I'll sign up for a small group. Give me a cookie, right? So even as we hear and we read our vision statement that says we want to see irreligious people become fully transformed followers of Jesus Christ, what exactly are we wanting to see? How do we follow him? What does Jesus want from us? How does he want us to follow him? Several times in the New Testament, you can find Jesus having these conversations with people. Jesus, what must I do to be saved? What what must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to follow you? And you have Jesus drawing a line in the sand each time saying, if you want to follow me, you have to count the cost. So what was the cost of following Jesus? What was the cost of being a disciple? Well, here's a little history. Uh, In the Old Testament and New Testament, disciples uh, would, would follow a rabbi. A rabbi was a teacher. You would, so what does it mean to follow a rabbi? Well, the Jews believed that God gave them the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. God has given them to the, the Torah. It was translated the way. And so Jewish boys and girls um, around the age of four and six would, would go to the school known as the Bet Safar, which is called the House of the Book. And they would uh, learn and begin to memorize these first five books. And by the age of 10, they would have memorized every word of the Torah. And after that, if they passed that level of schooling, um, if they were the best of that class, well, they would continue in their education. And it's not totally clear, but it seemed that the girls, they would go back to their homes and they would begin to learn how to be a wife or a mom because most of the girls in that time were married off by the age of 14. But for the boys, this next level of schooling was the um, the Bet Tamad, which is the house of learning. So ages from 10 to 14, you got these boys are memorizing the rest of the Old Testament. So now Genesis through Malachi, memorized. And when the boy turned 14, if he was the best of the best of the best now, he would then seek out some well-known rabbi and say, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your bet midrash is what they called it. In essence, he's saying, I want to be like you. And that was important because being a disciple was more than just knowing the rabbi, but you wanted to be just like him, do the things that he did. And in Bible times, there were many rabbis to follow, just like now. Each one of them had their specific interpretation of scripture. One rabbi might say, read scripture and say, well, I think it means this. And another rabbi might say, well, I believe it means this. And they called this the yoke of the rabbi. It was his teaching, his philosophy, his interpretation of scripture. It was his yoke. And so this 14-year-old Jewish kid, best of the best of the best, would, would choose which rabbi he wanted to follow. He would have decided, that's who I want to be like. Well, then it was the rabbi's turn, and he would begin to interview this kid, right? Ask him all sorts of questions, testing him to see if this kid was legit. Was he really the best of the best? Was he for real? The rabbi would need to believe and have faith in him that this kid could do what I do. Could he be who I am? And if chosen, the boy would leave his family and devote his entire life, the next 15 years now, uh, to becoming a disciple, a, a student. He would devote his life to becoming exactly like the rabbi. In fact, he would follow him so close that you would hear it say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that was is you followed so close to your rabbi that the dust that he would kick up from his sandals as he walked would cover you. 
And so fast forward to the New Testament. This is what separates Jesus from the other rabbis. His disciples did not choose him, but he chose them. Which is great news for all of us because I don't know if any of us in here are the best of the best of the best, right? We found out last week that we were messy and broken. That's what we were told, right? It's true. We're messy, broken people in need of a savior. And Jesus shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he says, hey guys, you fishermen, listen, you dropouts, you didn't make it. Throw down your nets, follow me. And the same is for you and I, that he chose you and I and he says to all of us, follow me. But how, what what does that look like? And this is where we pick up in the notes if you have a bullet. And this is the notes part. It says, Jesus is going to tell us that you cannot be his disciple. You cannot follow him without giving up everything you own. And the only way we can do this is if we surrender control. Surrender control of everything. Our jobs, our kids, our money, our relationships, our time, this church, our future. Because when we are dealing with the stresses and pressures of life, whether our job or our finances, our relationships, when we feel burdened and we feel weighed down, we start start to tighten our grip on those things, right? We want to take it by the reins. We want to take control of everything. Not now, God. I got to fix this. And we quit following God. We quit trusting him. We quit walking behind the rabbi. And we begin to to believe that we're in control, that we got this. And when we allow those things to get between us and God, God says, hey man, things aren't right between us. You said you would follow me. You said you would let go of those things to follow me. And we look back at God and say, look man, I'm doing the best I can. Today, God might be saying to you, no, you're not. See, God wants to drastically change the way you think about everything in your life. And that's how we become fully transformed followers of Jesus Christ. This rabbi says, for my yoke is easy to bear and my burden I give you is light. And so I want to look at this passage in Luke 14 and see some things that Jesus wants to change when it comes to the way we think. So Luke 14, starting in verse 25 it says now large crowds were beginning uh, were going along with him and he turned and he said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple and some of you read that and say where do i sign up man You know, I've been hating my family for years, right? You know, it it would be, for some of us, it would be very easy to not like our family. But I don't think that's what he means. I don't think it's this referring to this hostile hatred. But what he's saying is that your commitment to me has to be greater. In fact, your commitment to me is so great that you may be accused of hating some people. And the tragedy is, I don't think that's true for most of us. It's definitely not true for me a lot of the time. You see, I am way more committed to what people think of me, want from me, expect from me. I will listen and follow that much quicker and give that much more authority than what God wants from me. 
And each one of us have people in our lives, relationships that we hold higher than God, where we spend all of our energy and all of our life addicted, obsessed, worried about what others think of us, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our kids. I can't tell you how many parents I have witnessed trying to impress their teenagers. Look how cool I am, kids, right? You know, listen, your teenager doesn't need some cool 40 or 50-year-old mom or dad to hang out with. They need a parent who loves them enough to say no, okay? So what are some signs that you're maybe holding on too tightly to, to what people think about you, your relationships, the people in your life? One is that you constantly replay conversations over in your head, right? You reread text messages or emails. What do, what do they mean by that? What are, what are they saying? You're, you're always trying to patch up or fix relationships that aren't going the way you want them to go. You're constantly thinking, wondering, what will they say? What will they say if I do this or do that? As a church leader, we deal with the they's all the time. If you do this, they won't like it. If they won't be happy, they will leave. They will, they'll, they'll stop giving. So as church leaders, we sat down a couple of years ago and we said, no longer will we listen to the they's. If someone comes to us and says, some people said that they have an issue. We ask them, well, who, who is the they? Well, I don't feel comfortable telling you who they is. Our reply I don't feel comfortable listening to anonymous sources, but if they have a name and they want to talk, I will be happy to listen. And more times than not, the they's, they don't exist. I coached 13 girls between the ages of 9 and 11 basketball, and I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end of the season. Girls and girl drama are out of control. Okay, I, I, I made a promise to my wife. I'm not having girls. I'm not. Yeah. Okay, yesterday. Yesterday, before the game starts, and I have witnesses. Um, I get one of the girls come up to me. Uh, I'm sitting up there with, with James and Jeff. And one of the girls comes up to me and says, so-and-so is in the locker room. She's crying. And so I'm like... <laughs> what do I do? You know, I mean, I'm not good with this. I'm a, I'm a guy. Stop crying. Um, so I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm looking at the assistant coaches in there. I'm like, all right, I got to do this. So I go down with this, with this girl. I won't, I won't name her. Um, and uh, so I'm like, well, what's going on? Well, um, you know, she was saying this, and then someone said this, and then she said this, and then I said this. And then we just kind of went off, and now she's crying. And so I go down there, and sure enough, I find the one girl, she's crying in the bathroom, and I pull her, and I say, hey, come out here, let's talk. And I said, what's going on? And she tells me, I said this, and I said this, and then they said this, and then they all jumped in on this and, and gave me this long list of things that I've been doing, and, 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 and on and on, and I'm, now I'm crying. And so, <laughs> so I, I, I take a minute, and I have this conversation, and I got 13 girls now I'm going to have this conversation with, and I talk to them about being a team and about... Um, being friends and how much this is so much bigger than basketball and, and, and the fact that these are girls that are your friends and you're growing up with and you're way too young to be mean and to be talking about things. And if you have an issue with this girl and she does something to you, you go to her and you tell her, hey, I didn't like that. I don't understand why you did it. It hurt me. And if that doesn't work and she's still that same way, you come to me and then we'll both go together and we'll talk to her and say, hey, this is the way it feels when you do this. But that's how you handle it. 
adults, if you have an issue with person A and you go to person B and you complain and criticize and share rumors, that's gossip. Whether your conversation ends with amen or not. You go to person A, if they don't listen, you get person B and you go together. Matthew 18. Okay, where was that? Parents, right? Parents, we have to surrender control of our kids. We want to hold on so tightly to keep our kids from making the bad decisions they're going to make. In a year and a half, my son and daughter will be in middle school. And I'm not going to say which one, but one of them thinks she's already in high school. All right? <laughs> Listen. And up to this point, my biggest worry as a father has been, when will she stop thinking she's a pirate? And, and when will he stop wearing princess costumes, right? Those, those are my biggest worries up to this point, right? And they both quit both things. It's good. But now it's on, right? Middle school, it's coming. High school, it's coming. College. And as parents, we want to hit the easy button, right? Listen. Our kids will go out of control. They're going to go down some wrong paths. They're going to make hurtful choices. True story. But we can't control all of that. We have to let God move. Jesus is saying, follow me. Let go of them. Follow me. We have to rethink the people in our lives that we're more committed to pleasing and following them more than we are following Jesus. So the second thing is we need to rethink our personal preferences or our our personality. Luke 14, verse 26. Let's start with, uh, we did that. Let's do verse 27. It says, whoever does not carry his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. The cross was a symbol of death, this execution. Uh, It was a symbol of dying to oneself. When you were commanded to pick up your cross, you would die to yourself. Your personality traits, your characteristics, the ways in which you were wired, right? How we give ourselves permission to be who we are, right? Well, that's just the way I am. I'm an introvert. I don't like to talk to people, so this gives me permission to be rude. Or how many of this? Don't talk to me until I have my coffee, right? Leave me alone until I have my coffee. Okay, I have my coffee. Now I can be civil and kind. Yeah, I wake up every morning to that, right? So, (laughs) IV. So, But listen, I have every reason and excuse to be a jerk of a father and a jerk of a husband because that's all I knew growing up as a kid. But to do that and continue to do that and use that excuse is sin. God changed my father. I have no excuse. Maybe we have hobbies or rhythms of our day that, that must happen. Maybe we even have these small personal sinful pleasures that we give ourselves permission to do. Jesus is saying, let's be honest. If you're letting your personal preferences, your personality, your sinful pleasures, your rhythms of your life, if those are getting between you and me, and you're not following me, you're following you. Doing what you want. Jesus comes and says, hey guys, when you and I are at our best together, we know the details we do life together. And lately, it's been all about you. Are you really following me? I think you can do better. We need to rethink our possessions. Verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe is it being to begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. In Luke 12, Jesus tells another story of a man who, who had so much stuff that he accumulated that he needed bigger barns and, 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 and more barns, and he began to build. And the story says that just as he finished building these bigger barns, he died. And he spent his entire life trying to be rich in this world instead of being rich towards God. Let's be honest, though. Who doesn't get excited about the next new thing we can get? The iPhone 6, the, the bigger TV, the new car, the next whatever. And hear me say this. It's, it's okay to have stuff. It's okay to buy stuff. But a signpost that we're holding on too tightly to our possessions. But we are reluctant to give. When we're not generous, when we're not willing to share what God has given us, when we're not inviting people into our homes, and we're not seeing the opportunities we have to to give to each other, when we're building bigger barns. How can I get more? How can I get the next whatever? We are not content with what we have. And then God comes along and he says, listen, you cannot follow me and be my disciple and pursue me. If you're chasing stuff. Matthew 6 says, if you love God or you love money, but you cannot serve both. And the last one is, we need to rethink our performance. Verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Surrender control. So that none of you uh, can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Okay, type A people, where are you at? Where are my type A people? That's it. I know there's more. Uh, Now I want to raise your hand. Maybe you're not sure if you're a type A. Well, here, how do you know if you're a type A? Let me get this. If... If you make a list at the end of your day and write things on the list that you've already did just so you can cross them off, you might be type A, right? You might struggle with this. Any admitters? Yeah. Confession, right? For all of us, though, type A or not, if you, your measure of success for the day is not how much fun you had or the people you were with or the quality time you had with them, but how many items you can cross off a list— if your success is determined by how many points you scored in the game, how much commission you made at work, how many loads of laundry you did at home, or how many likes you got on your latest Facebook blog or post, right? You need to rethink performance. Maybe for some of us, it's the amount of spiritual performance you did that day. Were you able to post your morning scripture reading on Facebook so we could all see it? If your time and energy is spent trying to show everyone how successful you are, spiritually or vocationally, if you are obsessed with that, you need to rethink your performance. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's not able to to admit defeat, to admit that you need help with something, knowing that the army that you have can't beat the army that's on its way, but you want to do it alone. Same thing spiritually. I got this, God. I don't need you. I can, I can handle this on my own. I don't need a small group. I can do this journey alone. And then the church spiritual performance goes bad quick. 
Look how holy I am and how holy they, they're not, right? And your spiritual performance is on display for everyone. And we begin to put expectations on other people and we lay guilt trips on them for not living up to the standards that we set for them saying, you need to work harder for God. We need to give up control and give up our attempts to make ourselves spiritual or significant if we want to follow Jesus. We cannot hold on to performance too tightly. We must not let our performance be the source or determine our value, our significance, or our worth. And let me close, let me close with this as the band joins me on stage. These things are not. Wow, why'd you do that? Wow. Things. You're wrecking the mood, Liz. These things are not evil things. These are actually all good things. God loves relationships, He loves people. God loves our personalities. He, He wired us each uniquely. Our possession, God, God gives us things to enjoy. God has even given us all permission to perform and to be excellent at it. These are all good things. The problem comes when we give those things more authority in our life than Jesus. God has not asked us to build a tower. He's not asking us for our daily rhythms and our preferences to dictate how we live. God doesn't command us to to gather money and stuff or or face the battle alone. He simply says, follow me. Let me be the source of your value. Let me be the the source of your value. And I showed you your value when when I died on the cross for you. I'm going to read you the rest of that blog that John Ortberg Ortberg wrote. Here's how it ends. It says, I began to realize that what I really want isn't any particular outcome or any particular project. Those are all just means to an end. What I really want is to be fully alive inside. What I really want is the inner freedom to live in love and joy. I want to be that man she described. I'm a grown man, I thought. I do not know how many years of life are before me. I cannot wait anymore. When I was going to school, I was preoccupied with good grades or getting cute girls to like me. As the years went by, I became preoccupied with work and my circumstances because I thought that they would make me feel alive. I can't wait anymore to be that man, I thought. I realized this then and I know it now. I want that life more than I want anything else. Not because I think I'm supposed to. Not because it says somewhere that I should. I want it. There is a me I want to be. Life is not about any particular achievement or experience. The most important task of your life is not what you do, but who you become. There is a me you want to be. And ironically, becoming this person will never happen if my primary focus is on me. Just as no one becomes happy if their main goal 
is to be happy. God made you to flourish, by, by, but flourishing never happens by looking out for number one. It is tied to a grander and nobler vision. The world badly needs wise and foolish, uh, I'm sorry, wise and flourishing human beings. And we are called to bring God's wisdom and glory to the world. The truth is those who flourish always bring blessings to others. And they can do so in the most unexpected and humble circumstances. God made you to flourish, to receive life from outside yourself, creating vitality within yourself and producing blessing beyond yourself. Flourishing is God's gift and plan. And as you do, you glimpse for a moment why God made you. Only God knows your full potential and he is guiding you toward that best version of yourself all the time. And he has many tools and is never in a hurry. That can be frustrating for us. But even in our frustration, God is at work to produce patience in us. He never gets discouraged by how long it takes and he delights every time you grow. Only God can see the best version of you. And he is more concerned with you reaching your your full potential than you are. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 You are not your handiwork. Your life is not your project. Your life is God's project. God thought you up and he knows what you were intended to be. He has many good works for you to do, but they are not the kind of to-do list we give spouses or employees. They are signposts to your true self. Your spiritual life is not limited to certain devotional activities that you engage in. It is receiving power from the Spirit of God to become the person God had in mind when He created you, His handiwork. I want to invite you to stand and I want you to close your eyes. Some of you, you're here and you're like, I've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I've never thought about it. I've never acted upon it. Today might be the day where you finally choose to follow Jesus. If that's you, I want you to, to pray this prayer in your heart with me. God, I choose today to, to follow you with my life. I recognize that I need a savior. I recognize that Jesus died on a cross rose from the dead and reconciled my relationship back with God. And I want to now give you my heart and give you my life. I choose to follow you today. For the rest of us, while your eyes are still closed, to follow Jesus, we have to let go of whatever it is we're holding on to. God comes and says, I have a plan for you. I I want to transform you into a new person. I want you to do life with me. And I have thought about this before the creation of the earth. I had these plans for you. Too often we come with our hands full and we say no. And he says, let go and follow me. We must surrender control and come empty handed. So what have you been holding on to? Have you counted the cost of following him? What have you let come between you and God? Surrender control of your relationships, your stuff, your personality, your performance, this place.
let go and let God. I want to invite you to worship with me.